1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be starting at verse 4 and reading through verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, what we have just read is probably the most famous, most well-known passage in the letter of 1 Peter. In this passage, Peter is building on themes that he's already introduced at the beginning of this letter. Themes of belonging and rejection, of holiness and sinfulness, of mercy and of judgment. And all these things help us to see and to understand better our identity as the people of God. And this question of identity is really what Peter is after. Because, as we explored in the message two weeks ago, the people who made up the early church had lost a lot of the social markers of their identity. They had lost a lot of the things that people tend to build their identity on. People in late antiquity would have found their identity in their ancestry, in their philosophical tradition, in their social status, in their wealth, in their ethnic heritage, and all of these things are challenged by the persecution that is facing the churches that Peter is writing to. When people became Christians in the early Roman Empire, they couldn't always rely on these markers of, of identity and these, these status pieces to protect them. Their ancestry, their family, their heritage couldn't protect them anymore because to everybody around them, it would seem as though they had betrayed these things. Christians in the early church abandoned their family gods. They didn't participate in the cultural customs of the day and the feasts and the holidays that their town would have celebrated. And so in a lot of ways, they were considered traitors to their culture. 
And I think that we today, in a lot of ways, lose sight of how devastating this was for people. We have the benefit, of course, of living in a free society where we can practice our religion openly and without fear. But we also have two other blessings that the people who Peter is writing to did not have. Many of us come from families who have been practicing Christians for generations. And so we don't know what it's like to be estranged from our family because of faith, because of the gospel. And second, we live in a society that uh, has been culturally shaped by Christianity. And so our Christian holidays are also our national holidays. Christmas and Easter are part of the yearly rhythm of what it means to be Canadian. And so we don't know how awkward and uncomfortable it is to not participate in the big cultural holidays. So imagine with me for a moment, if you will, what it must have been like to become a Christian in Peter's time. Your family is pagan. Your whole culture is oriented around the cycles of the heavenly bodies, the cycles of the gods. And so every spring and every fall, the whole town shuts down for a week-long party to celebrate the beginning and the end of the growing season. Your whole family prays to the gods over the fireplace every night, asking them to protect your home and help your crops grow. And then your life is touched by the preaching of the gospel. And you come to know that there is only one God who's revealed in the scriptures through Jesus Christ, you come to know your own brokenness, that because of your sins you are outside of God's favor, and that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself because of the debt that you owe to God. The debt that you owe to God is too big to pay. But Jesus, the Messiah, has already paid that debt with his own blood on the cross by dying for our sins. And more than that, after three days, he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven sent his Holy Spirit to guide us here on earth, and one day will return to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth, and you already now are invited to be a part of that kingdom that is to come in this life. And your life is transformed, because that's what the gospel does. The gospel transforms our lives. But for the people that Peter's writing to, it's not at all easy for them to hold fast to this new faith that has transformed their life because by becoming Christian, they've given up so much. You become estranged from your family because you don't participate in the family prayers anymore because the prayers are to idols. You don't eat at family meals because the meat that your family eats is offered to idols. You don't go with your family to big holiday gatherings and family events because these gatherings celebrate false gods. Your family doesn't understand your decision and is actually worried about you because what you're doing is social suicide. They don't understand how you could abandon the faith that your family has held for so many generations since the beginning of time. They don't have any problem with Jesus, but why don't you just add Jesus next to the other gods on the mantle place? We can tolerate that. We can pray to him too. You don't have to throw away your whole life and your family's legacy just because you heard this story about a new God. The job that your uncle hooked you up with for the summer falls through. 
because your employer finds out that you're part of this strange new cult that rejects the gods, confusion becomes distrust, becomes anger, becomes rejection. You're cut off from the family inheritance, your parents disown you, and now the government is knocking at your door because you're charged with disturbing the, beat, the peace, corrupting the youth, and rejecting the gods. Everything that made you who you are is gone. You're cut off from your family's legacy, from their wealth, from your inheritance, from the moral and philosophical teachings that you grew up with, from your cultural heritage. This is the situation of the people that Peter is writing to. People who have given up their identity for the sake of the gospel. People who have been cut off from their families. People who have lost their jobs because of their faith. People who are being hounded by the local government for going against tradition. And to these people, Peter offers a powerful message of what it means to be the church. What it means to be God's chosen people. And the message that Peter gives is a message of community. A community chosen by God. A community brought together not by common ancestry or social status or wealth or heritage, but by God's mercy and God's grace. Peter offers them this new identity, an identity that is founded and established in the person of Jesus Christ. The stuff that Peter says here in this passage is amazing. Peter jumps all over the Old Testament, pulling from so many different places that we start to lose track and get a little disoriented. He starts with the prophecies of Isaiah, who throughout his book has these references to the cornerstone of the new temple that God will build in Zion. A prophecy which in Peter's time was largely interpreted as referring to the person of the Messiah. And for good measure, he throws in a reference to Psalm 118, just so that we see that the, the whole cornerstone idea isn't just an Isaiah thing. He uses rich Old Testament imagery to talk about our identity as God's people, a royal priesthood and a holy nation from Exodus 19 and the book of Deuteronomy, a people belonging to God, which goes all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And verse 10 of this uh, chapter is practically a quote from Hosea chapter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if all of that feels like a whirlwind of Old Testament trivia, imagine how it must have sounded to pagan converts living in rural Turkey. People who not only probably couldn't read, but who had not ever grown up with these stories being told to them, stories of Abraham and Moses and Isaiah, stories of the cornerstone, stories of God's covenant with his people. It's kind of funny to me because the imagery changes so much throughout this passage. 
The, the passage is clearly about stones. Peter uses the word stone five times in eight verses with the word rock thrown in there, just in case you got distracted. But what are these stones? What are the stones and what are they doing? First, Jesus is the stone and human beings are the builders building this building and they reject Jesus, the stone. But then all of a sudden God is building a building and Jesus is the cornerstone of that building. And then people, Christians, are stones that are being built up into a house, being built up into a temple. And then Christians are priests serving in that temple. The imagery jumps around so much. And, and when, when you look at it, when you study it too much, it starts to look like it should be confusing. But it's not, somehow. What Peter is saying here is so clear. Our identity is found in Christ. Our identity is found in Christ. Not in our ancestry, not in our ethnic heritage, not in our cultural practices or our wealth or our inheritance, not in our job or our class or our social position. Our identity is found in Christ alone. And together, together, we are being built up into a spiritual house. We are being built up into a temple where God lives. Together. And we are laid against the cornerstone of Jesus Christ himself. The cornerstone that lays out the trajectory and the direction of the whole building. The first stone that lays out the plan for the rest of the structure. Together, we are being built up as stones into this building. Stones that are shaped by faith, founded in hope, cemented together by love. Together, we are being built up into the body of Christ. There are two things that I, want to, that I want us to think about as we contemplate this passage, this beautiful passage that points us to our new identity in Christ. The first thing is that this past week in the United States and in Canada was Mental Health Awareness Week. People with mental illnesses face incredible challenges to their identity. People who struggle with things like anxiety and depression are in a unique situation because their illness is in many ways invisible, and so they can cover it up. And many of us don't know or aren't aware of their struggle. And this can make people feel like they suffer alone. The stigma that people with mental illness carry is difficult to bear. And when we come together to worship God, especially when we come together on holiday weekends and other events when family and, and things like that become so important, and when we're supposed to be happy and celebrative and joyful, it can be difficult for people who wrestle with anxiety and depression to feel like their needs and their struggles are shared by others. 
people can feel very alone. The second thing that I want to draw your attention to, and I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but the leadership of the Christian Reformed Church a couple weeks ago released a statement on racism. We're against it. <laughs> but one of the things that it talks about in this document is that too often in the history of our church, we have defined ourselves based on our cultural heritage and not on the rock of Jesus Christ. Too often in the history of our church, we have defined ourselves by our ethnic heritage to the exclusion of people from other backgrounds. The Christian Reformed Church started as a church of Dutch immigrants, and there are many people even worshiping with us today who remember what it was like to leave their families behind in Europe to start life in a new continent. And you remember the pain of giving up the traditions and practices that helped to shape you as you stepped into life in a new culture, in a new world, in a new community. You remember what it was like to be alone in a foreign land that was not your home. But this community, the church, offers us a different identity. Our identity is not found in our ethnic heritage. Our identity is not found in our race. Our identity is not found in our own wholeness or our attitude or our ability to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ alone. And together, together, we are being built up into a spiritual house, into a temple where God dwells. We are not alone. And this is what we're trying to live out in our communities. Our identity is not found in our family or in our ethnic heritage or in our social status or wealth or physical or mental wholeness. Our identity is found in Christ. And we all together need to strive to make Jesus the cornerstone of our identity together. And one small way that we can do this is by embracing those who feel alone, especially in times when we tend to exclude them, in times of celebration, times when we gather together as families, times when we celebrate our cultural holidays these are the times when it is most important for us to make sure that we live out this call to make Christ the cornerstone of our community, to make Christ the cornerstone of our identity. And so as we enter into the holiday season this year, I'm going to leave you with a challenge. As we enter into the holiday season this year, let's make an effort to include our brothers and sisters who feel like they don't belong, who feel lonely and discouraged, who are separated from their families, who are separated from those they love. Let's work as communities to the poor, the downtrodden, the foreigner, those who are suffering in our midst 
instead of leaving them to suffer alone. Let's invite them into our homes. Let's invite them into our families. Let's invite them into our lives together as God's people. Because once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Lord our God, we confess that so often in our lives we find our identity in things other than you. We idolize things that many of our brothers and sisters have had to give up around the world and throughout history because of their faith. And Lord, we pray that you would transform us by your Holy Spirit so that we might find our identity in you alone, in your grace, in your love, and in the people that you have called us to be a part of. Lord, we thank you that you invite us into this story that is so much bigger than we are. The story of your grace to your people throughout history. We thank you that we are made a part of the promises that were made to Abraham and to Moses and to the prophets. We thank you that you make us brothers and sisters of your son, Jesus Christ that you adopt us as your children. And Lord, we pray that you would equip us with everything that we need to follow your will. We pray that you would help us to see our identity as your people, and that you would help us to welcome and to embrace all of those who you have called to yourself. We are not alone. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.